Welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. (laughs) Welcome back, everyone. We are pumped to have you today on the podcast with my co-host, Dean McKillop, and we have the VIP, Brandon Kempdahl. Welcome. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me on, guys. I think I've officially coined him the goat of conditioning. Oh, yeah? Yeah. As of, as of three days ago or something on Instagram, the goat. <laughs> he's officially the goat of conditioning in Australian bodybuilding. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, that, that's a, a, a title I, uh, yeah, I would certainly love to embrace. So cheers. <laughs> well, I mean, who's, 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 out, who's outdone you? Oh, look, uh, I'd say, like, internationally, there's definitely uh, some phenomenal athletes in the US. I think the US in general... There is a subgroup, at least, of people in the US that takes the next level. I reckon Australia, U- US, and the UK. UK, they're also really phenomenal athletes. There's definitely others who have uh, quite possibly surprised um, my conditioning, but yeah. But not in Australia. He's not willing to name names. Australia goat. So I said he's um, Australian goat. Now, Brendan, for those of you that don't know you, if maybe they're outside the natural bodybuilding world, who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? Uh, I suppose. Brief overview. Uh, yeah, my name is Brandon Kempter. I have a, a coaching business called BK Conditioning. Uh, before I was a coach, I was first an athlete and I competed. Uh, I started competing in natural bodybuilding in my teens, went from teens to juniors to opens, uh, and in recent years into pro natural bodybuilding. Uh, and obviously, alongside that, uh, since a teen, obviously, uh, yes, I've, I've sort of created my uh, niche in preparing natural physique athletes for the stage. And obviously within, I suppose, within the niche of bodybuilding, it's natural bodybuilding. Within the niche of natural bodybuilding as a whole, it's really more, well, bodybuilding and figure. Um, And I mean, in very small part, I'll do some work with, you know, bikini along the way. But really creating freaks is my, you know, that rocks my world. So that's where my niche is. And why do I do it? Well, Well, because I love it. I mean, it really comes down to, I think in, in our industry, it has to be a passion-driven project. And that's really where it started for me. I love bodybuilding. Um, I loved, uh, you know, the, 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 the process and uh, everything that it, you know, how it positively contributed to my life. And I like to, to sort of spread that uh, along to others. Mm. Love it. If you um, weren't in natural bodybuilding, coaching and competing, what do you think you'd be doing? <laughs> Good question. Believe it or not, um, one of the first preferences I put down um, was in uh, like environmental science, actually. Very different. It, it's super different. And honestly, how I got here uh, was a, a matter of fate. And I love training. I think no matter what I would have, if it was something I chose that was something different to fitness and bodybuilding, I'd still be doing what I'm doing personally. But um, it just came down to they basically didn't want to run this particular course at that time. Uh, and the second preference was, okay, cool. Let's do something in the fitness industry. And here we are uh, over nearly a decade later, almost. <laughs> I think like you fell into a really good circle of Australian bodybuilding community too, whereby you probably push forward at a faster rate than most people without having to deal with a lot of the uh, poorer um, coaching practice. Mm. You could say that. Yes, I definitely think that, um, look, I'm really big on mentorship in every area of life. I think the mentorship can cut your learning down uh, massively. And when you're dealing with natural bodybuilding or bodybuilding in general, it's a timely process and your competitive potential um, 
you know, is only, only exists for a couple of decades in your life. So you want to waste as little time as possible. And I was very fortunate to fall in with a really good crowd. Um, obviously, you know, Nathan Wallace, uh, for one, has probably played one of the, the largest influences um, in my bodybuilding career and really showing me what was possible in that realm um, and really how to, you know, how, well, how to direct my variables and how to train to the, to the level of, of the top guys. And I think that definitely accelerated my progress early in my career um, as, a, as a teen and a junior, for sure. Mm. So lucky that you fell into the right crowd because so many people get misdirected early on. Super fortunate. Honestly, it would have been very... See, I, so I'm, at that time in my life, I was on the Sunshine Coast, um, which obviously has, it has a bodybuilding... Uh, it has a bodybuilding culture, but it's very different to the Gold Coast. I think the Gold Coast is probably the... For Queensland, at least, it has to be the capital. There's more people that are concerned about the way they look than anywhere else. And there's more, well, there's more drugs, I think, in general, not just performance hand drugs, but in general, than anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. how I grew up on the Gold Coast, it would have been very easy, I think, to fall into that crowd. And then, like, this is the norm. You know, everyone does this. Um, and I obviously have nothing against the enhanced crowd. I just think that there is, as you would probably agree, guys, there's, there's a lot of young people at, you know, 17 or 18 years of old, years of age that are getting involved in that side of things far too early and without the, the, the requisite knowledge or, or mentorship slash guidance to really do it right. Yeah. Or even training experience for that matter. Oh, how a training experience can you have at 18 years old? I mean, like not much. <laughs> There's a big difference between use of performance enhancing drugs and abuse of performance enhancing drugs. Um, and all the people I knew early on that were using performance enhancing drugs were only abusing them. So I thought like, that was the only thing people did. Like, if you take them, you will have back knee, you will be infertile, you will have all of these other issues. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realise that there were actually sensible people out there, but there, there, there are. <laughs> there are. There's few. There's a few. Yeah. <laughs> Not many. But it's a funny, man, um, like, I find the topic of young men, and even women especially, in untested federations competing quite a sensitive one. I'm still not sure where I sit on the fence even with it being an availability for an 18 year old to compete in an untested federation as a teenager. Because yeah. like you said, like they just don't have the time, both like the skin and the, game. the knowledge, nor even the maturity endocrinologically, physically, training age wise, mentally. mentally, you name it, right. To, to really make that decision as to whether or not it's the smartest thing to do. Mm. But you know, but I also appreciate like, if you want to be a pro starting early, isn't a terrible idea. So it's a weird, it's a weird genre. I think that people should incrementally step up their game. So first, you know, focus on your nutrition and then focus on your training and like build as you go. Yeah. Um, and performance enhancing drugs seems to be the next step, but you don't want to start there. That seems silly. Yeah. The problem is that people miss the message that it is enhancement of the process, not, the cre not creation. Yeah. yeah, well, exactly right. And I mean, I think if you look at any other sport, literally any other sport that works on young athletic development, any other sport that's actually respected, right? That's not bodybuilding. <laughs> they have a progression system. You know, you're working with young athletes in football. Okay, cool. Well, we have, a, you know, uh, you know, we do primarily body weight stuff, et cetera, at, between this and this age. At this time, you know, we've, we've built the coordination um, to start to progress to free weights, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously you work up that hierarchy and obviously for bodybuilding, there is an additional step because, you know, in untested bodybuilding, we've got, you know, pharmacology as well, but there definitely should be a progression there. 
Um, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I think some people definitely do it right. I mean, we've seen it uh, time and time again uh, where we have, you know, natural guys that have done, uh, you know, competed many times and then they decide to go to the enhanced realm. And those are usually the guys that have, you know, they got a few years in the game. They know that they're going to make a goer of this. Um, and yeah, they're the guys that seem to do really well oftentimes. Yeah. How come you've decided not to go to the dark side? That's a really good question. You know, when I was young and influenceable, I think, like I said, it, the people I hung around with definitely played an influencing role. Had I spent more time around people that were enhanced, I probably would have went that route. And like most people, when I started training, I was like, you know what? I want to be the biggest, most jacked guy in the gym. Like, what, how do I do that? Um, I would say two things really come into play. One is the people I hung around with and really seeing where the ceiling was. I mean, at that time, let's be honest, there were so many people who would question guys that at the top of the game in Australia at that time, people like, for example, Nathan Wilson say, oh, those guys can't be natural. Oh. Uh, and obviously being introduced to their circle and going, you know what? These guys are the real deal. That was definitely an important piece. On top of that, I'll be totally honest with you. Um, and, until recently, I was absolutely needle phobic. These days I can get a blood test without passing out. Yes, that's winning. Um, <laughs> but the... Uh, the prospect of being a human pincushion, just, I was like, nah, I cannot do this, man. <laughs> so those two pieces played in uh, as, as to why I stayed natural. Uh, yeah. Mm. Well, you could not give a fuck about your health and do orals only. <laughs> 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 Luckily, I at least had some, at that time in my life, some fundamental <laughs> understanding of, uh, you know, physiology, et cetera, to, to understand that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's true. That's pretty funny. But anyway, dude, the, um, the reason why I think I specifically was interested in getting you on too is because I think, um, one, you do have an exceptional capability not only to get yourself inside outfield, but a lot of your clients. Mm. Um, and you have sort of set yourself up in this industry as one of the go-to guys. I don't even, like, obviously natural bodybuilding, but I think there's a lot of people even in the enhanced group, and I may be biasing myself here plus the people I associate with, that look to guys like you for... Uh, experience, knowledge, information, application, because the one thing that a natural bodybuilder doesn't have is the enhancement, which means you're heavily reliant on maximizing the process to achieve the outcome you're in. So I just wanted to sort of get a, um, I suppose, a macroscopic overview of like what it takes to be at your level as a bodybuilder and how do you set that up? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's a really loaded question. There's a stack of stuff to get into and feel free to uh, interject if I go off on a tangent here. Um, <laughs> But look, I think to, to, be, to be your best bodybuilder, natural bodybuilder that is, I think it's a, it's a combination of time, strategy, and downright work ethic. Mm -hmm. And I think that natural bodybuilders are definitely the artists, so to speak, of modulating training and nutrition to influence slash direct body composition. Um, yeah, and obviously, yeah, so strategy, that's a big part of it. And obviously, within that sort of realm, um, uh, it's, it's hard to nail down any specific there, but obviously, because it is uh, bespoke. Um, but I think, and obviously work ethic, it's, it's a matter of consistent high-quality training nutrition over time. There really is uh, no way to shortcut it in any way. I think that's obviously with performance-enhancing drugs, there is definitely times in which you can outdrug perhaps some suboptimalities. And obviously individuals like yourself that actually optimize everything across the board, training, nutrition, and pharmacology, they're the guys that create pros consistently in that sort of realm. Um, but I mean, that, that would be my, uh, general piece. Is there anything else you want to kind of like 
tread, dredge up in that particular area? Yeah, that was it were a really broad question, so I understand that was difficult. Um, okay, perhaps what do you see as the biggest mistakes people make that, that you tend to correct with your clients? Um, I'm really big on habit creation, um, and I like to work with my athletes in the off-season. Uh, as a starting point to sort of integrate them into sort of like the lifestyle component of bodybuilding. And I find it gives them an easier transition into the contest prep itself. Mm. Um, I think that obviously the habits that we create to create uh, high quality or elite, depending on how you want to call it, natural bodybuilders perhaps isn't, you know, it is, it is far from normal compared to the everyday gen pop individual. Uh, but creating those habits goes a long way. And, and also uh, teaching the way I like to work is we is I look at Connor's preparation as a game of give a little and take a little, or really for anything really. So uh, I like to teach my athletes. I teach new athletes how to train hard, and I teach advanced athletes when to train hard. This is when you push, this is when you pull back. And I think another general mistake also in the natural bodybuilding side of things, quite possibly the enhanced side, is um, is also setting realistic expectations in terms of, uh, in particular. The, the, the rate of fat loss of which we can endure to achieve top level conditioning, mm. uh, which obviously in the natural side of things, it takes us considerably longer than the enhanced because we have rather shite uh, nutrient partitioning capacity. <laughs> that would be my few points there. That's yeah. the scientific term, I believe, shite. Yeah, rather shite, yeah. yeah. Um, now, you mentioned setting up some habits with athletes that's quite different to gen pop people. What yeah. might those habits be? Uh, look, fundamental, uh, the fundamental habits that I like to create as a start around training is um, you know, basic principles in training, really starting from a ground-up approach in terms of um, you know, execution of movements, or I should say execution of movement within our exercise selections um, and standardizing that and also uh, creating routine around the, uh, the pre-training ritual and on top of that, creating routine around you know, tracking foods, et cetera. Uh, where it's applicable. So those sort of things I find are a really good piece to get, get, get to work on in the off season. You know, when I have someone that comes to me and we're starting contest pre preparation tomorrow, literally the first five to 10 weeks, uh, we're trying to get them set in what it's like to be a bodybuilder, um, at least to my standard, because my expectations are way up here. You know, oftentimes I have someone that comes from another coach, I'm like, what, you, you want me to go plus or minus two grams of these macros? I'm like, suck it up, buttercup, let's have a roll. Um, obviously in the off season, you know, we don't need that, but you need to know at least how to do that so that when you, you know, or be within an appropriate realm so that we're not going from, I've never tracked anything or, or let alone use a set of scales to, okay, from tomorrow, we're weighing everything to the gram in contest prep. That's like, wow, it's just too much change. So you think contest prep is more like a tightening up of habits, not an establishment of habits. A wonderful, how eloquently put. Yes, indeed. I, <laughs> the way I look at it is the just forget not to get off topic, but the off season to me is the lifestyle component. Bodybuilders always say, like, bodybuilders are lifestyle. I'm like, yeah, look, contest prep's not a lifestyle you want to live for any great length of time. You get in, you get out. Um, it's not conducive to having healthy relationships, let alone a healthy physique um, or body in general. The off season, like I said, lifestyle component, and everyone has a different definition of what they define as balance. But the baseline is if your definition of balance is sink and piss three times a week, training once a week with poor intensity, you're going to be a gen pop individual and be okay with that. But, you know, for some, for, for the bodybuilders I work with, you know, their definition, one person's definition of balance, he might be like a single 22-year-old guy that all he thinks about is bodybuilding. He's being 100% in the off-season. I'm like, go you, man. But I might have a family guy who's sitting at, you know, 27 years of age, got 
got uh, a, you know a child and a wife, etc. His definition of balance might be you know seventy percent on it, hundred percent, thirty percent off it. And I would say that's you know if that's the balance that, that you need to participate and be your most effective bodybuilding off season, then that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. But even that's not a big leap to go. Okay, cool. Now for the sake of this contest prep, we're going to turn the volume up to eleven and be hundred percent across the board. Like pretty easy to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was before you went with that last one. I was going to say, how do you, as an individual who loves the minutiae and being so tight, handle somebody who says, "I can only do seventy percent of what you expect"? Seventy percent, I can probably manage. Fifty percent, I probably can't. But I think here's the thing: um, it's not that I'm inflexible as a coach. Certainly not. Everything I do is built around the individual. But I think that as a coach, uh, you know, we we all have a coaching style. Uh, and we all attract certain clients. And I think that there is a coach for every single person. There's a coach for the person that says, look, I just want to get on stage because it's like, it's on my bucket list. I just want to give it a crack. That's not me. I don't, that's not me. Um, but they might, but someone else, there's a perfect coach for them. Um, so I mean, someone who wants to be 70 percent in the off season, I'm fine. But my expectation in contest prep, and I always say this, my, my coaching mannerisms change. In the off season, someone says to me, B, uh, I went out on the weekend and I sank 10 tins of alcohol and I got totally smashed with my uncle. I'm like, all right, thanks for letting me know that. Obviously, we've got to adjust your expectations of the result. Are you cool with that? And he goes, yeah, man, I'm willing to sacrifice some tracking accuracy, maybe a bit of my result for the sake of experiences. I'm like, if you're okay with that, I'm okay with that um, to a degree. <clears throat> um, to a degree. But then in contest prep, my mannerism would be like, you're messing around. You need to either cut the shit or we're just going to, there's no, you can find someone else. I'm probably a little bit more clear cut on the contest prep. My expectations are hundred percent on a contest prep, go all in or, or, or go home. But the off season, like I said, lifestyle component, probably a little bit different. Mm, I guess it's a poor reflection of you if an athlete hops on stage looking like Homer Simpson, you know? Well, yeah, look, but there's that, but to be, to go one layer deeper, the most frustrating thing in this whole entire universe to me is unrealized potential. Mm. I don't care if the individual comes to me with these, you know, five out of 10 genetics, or I've got the most genetic freak ever. All I care about is the very best result. If he can step on stage at the end of the time and go, B, I blew my own mind and I'm, I'm over, my, over the moon with what I've created. I would say, awesome. I don't care about the stage placing. That's a subjective piece. I can't control that. But I can, can you know, if you're stepping on stage with your best, you know, we're over the moon. That's the only thing that frustrates me when someone steps on stage and I'm like, man, like, oh, mm. it could have been X. Mm. Yes, <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing that crushes me. Do you find that you actually attract many clients now that you're so established that do find it difficult to flick that switch? Um, I think, oh, to answer your question, you know, the general, if I had to say what, who my avatar was, generally speaking, it's going to be, uh, you know, men slash women, mostly men because most women don't have the genetic proclivities to reach a figure level. It's just like a very small portion of the population there um, who've competed a couple of times and are really going to take it to that next level. So most of the people, not all, but most of the people that I tend to attract seem to be those people that are somewhat robotic with their, um, with, with their mentality to, to training and nutrition and contest prep as a whole. They're the guys that can take the emotion out of it. And that's what you need to do. Like, you can't have an emotional attachment to your off-season look. You can't have an emotional attachment to your contest prep look. Each body composition is a functional, um, you know, result of the desired outcome of each specific phase. And those guys are the guys that can go, yep, cool, 
Think of it really logically. Um, one plus one equals two. Eat this, do that. This outcome happens. Let's go. So most of the people, gratefully, that I work with tend to be, you know, like that. Um, and, and most of the established guys, I, I find they're quite easy to work with on the most behalf, at least. Um, yeah, I've, I've always, like, the, the better you get at your job, the more your clientele suits your avatar. Typically. And self-selects for them. Self-selects yeah. the bias of which, obviously, what you put out as a coach. So then your results typically become better and better and better because you're you're getting the people that, like you said, are specifically probably, um, like, very aligned with your thought process and your mantra and all the rest of it. And I think you also get better. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would say, like, I've got better over time at reading people. Like, if I'm doing a consultation, I'm going to usually have a good idea, like, we're going to be a good fit or maybe you know, I know someone else that might be able to work with you more efficiently. <laughs> Who do you send them to? No, who do you send them to? <laughs> I like, you know, these flex success guys. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, I, I'm really big on that. In that, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to waste the, the time of, of, the, of the athlete or yourself if you feel like someone's better at something than you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've had clients in the past where um, I, I don't do contest prep, in flex, Dean does. I do what we call gen pop for those listening that don't know what that stands for, general population. Um, and, you know, I've said to, I had conversations with people tell me about your goals. Okay. In order to achieve this, these are probably the things that you'll need to sacrifice or compromise. Are you willing? Absolutely. 110% in like willing to problem. sacrifice. If they say 110%, they're Dean's, fucked. Dean's pet hate. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, great. Sounds like, we can work together. You know, you only want to lose seven kilos. You don't have to give up the world. Just these few things for a portion of time. Then we get started, not willing to do anything, not willing to sacrifice, not willing to food prep. Like as soon as they have a craving, like there's no urge surfing. Um, and I find that particularly frustrating because even though I think people start with good intentions, mm. it just goes out the window so quickly. And mm. it, um, if I have a few of those clients at once, it really puts out my fire. Well, yeah, oh, I can imagine. I mean, Gen Pop in particular must be very challenging because the thing with Gen Pop is if you work with Gen Pop, it's because you really want to make a difference. You know, it's not just getting on stage. It's like you want to make a difference in this person's life, their overall health and probably their life expectancy. And it's really hard. Part of it, obviously, we all start in Gen Pop at some point, myself included. And what I always found so hard is that like you're literally watching people's health go down the toilet. And you know that with some habit change, they could do that. You have all the intention in the world, but you can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped. And it's heartbreaking. Mm. Um, like you said, it's still unrealized potential. It is, yeah. That's a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah. Um, thankfully, those clients are few and far between, but I still get them occasionally. And I think like any success we have is mostly because the client did the work. And I, I do feel like any failure I have is like maybe a failure on my behalf because maybe I didn't explain something enough or maybe I didn't, yeah. I don't know, maybe I didn't totally understand exactly what their needs were. And I do feel like even though those clients are frustrating, it, it sharpens me as a coach because oh. every time like I learn something new and I can apply something different and um, there's so much we can learn within biomechanics and physiology and whatever nutrition science, but I've spent a lot of time of recent years looking at habit change and behavior change. And yeah, and that's made the biggest difference for me. You bring up a really interesting topic before as well in, the, uh, in, in uh, like where you, as a coach, 
doesn't matter how you operate. You, you're going to take on the successes and the failure of your clients. And any coach worth their salt is emotionally invested in their clients. Um, <clears throat> now, my partner, Rachel, she, my fiance, actually, Rachel, she Ooh, would, uh, <laughs> uh, she would definitely, I mean, she's she seen me at my highs and seen me at my lows. And her thing is like, you need to sometimes uh, like take off the coaching hat, which is hard to do when you, you know, you live in your business. I mean, um, three steps that way is my kitchen. This is my office. So when I put my uniform on the morning, I come into work, <laughs> but it's, um, you know, you're emotionally invested in your clients and, uh, you know, when, when they have struggles, you feel that. And I, I definitely can relate to that where, and I think it's a good idea to ponder on areas of which you can improve instead of burying your head in the sand. But, um, it definitely cuts you deep sometimes it does. Mm, yeah, it can. Because one of the reasons that um, I really like working with Gen Pop is because for most of my life, I've been Gen Pop minus like, you know, a couple of preps and pops. Um, And I really feel like unlike um, your privileged scenario of having really good influences in the beginning, I had terrible influences and I developed um, really bad uh, body image, poor relationships with food, binge eating, And I know how painful that is. And I really want to help people kind of clear the confusion of nutrition and avoid having to go through that because I know nutrition can be simple and it doesn't have to be that hard. Like weight loss doesn't have to be that hard. Um, And I I think for that reason, because like I have such a strong reason for doing what I do, it's so hard not to be emotionally invested. And when these people, I don't know, maybe it's not the right place and time for them to make changes. It just like, it just puts knots in my stomach because I feel like, oh, I know that you're going to struggle so much. Like, just yeah. take yeah. this on board. Yeah. And that's what Flex Success is all about, right? I mean, like, it's, it's, it, I know you guys are really big on education. I mean, as we all should be as coaches, but I know uh, you guys have some really great educational resources for, you know, for your clients and athletes alike. Yeah. Well, we put a lot of time into our educational platform. So thank you. You've mentioned a couple of times before in regards to contest prep about setting up expectations. Mm. I think it would be nice for people to get some expectation on the time required to spend, say, in the off season and the building phase. Yeah. Not just the contest prep phase because, you know, what's your line built in the off season? <laughs> it's stuck, hey, built in the off season condition in prep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look, give some, I'll give an overview. Obviously, guidelines are exactly that guidelines as opposed to, a protocol which uh, you know indicates rigidity and something definite. But generally speaking, I like to apply a two to one ratio as like a minimum for the time of which you spend in contest prep to the off season. So if you're dieting for 25 weeks, let's spend 50 weeks in the off season plus the next contest prep, you're probably looking at around 18 months um, between shows as like a minimum. Uh, obviously that's a little bit, there's some variability there. If we have, uh, if I have a, say bikini athlete probably don't have to diet as long slash as aggressive and really have to sort of spend time reversing some of the unfortunate adaptations to a hypochloric environment probably can compete more frequently. Um, guys who are at the end of their athletic, uh, kind of, um, peak, let's say you're in your late, late forties, maybe early fifties. I would say like you probably want to compete more frequently again because you're not going to be pushing for stacks of progress. I'm like, let's just get some stage time. But in general, two to one ratio. Um, 
And as part of that in the off season, obviously we have gaining phases and mini cut phases. A minimum would be like a four one ratio, four times the amount of time gaining to, to dieting. For me and my athletes, that usually works out around eight months of straight gaining um, an appropriate pace bespoke to their uh, rate of adaptation to resistance-based training stress. And, you know, four to max eight weeks of mini cutting, short, sharp, aggressive, get in, get out. Now, contest preparation duration is obviously specific to uh, what the, the starting body composition is of the athlete and what condition we need to get in to achieve a competitive uh, realm. And generally speaking, um, within the men's category, it doesn't matter if it, whether it's fitness, men's physique or bodybuilding. I mean, your conditioning level needs to be top tier. Mm. Uh, and, and generally, oh, ballparking it, realistically, most guys would be doing something around a 25-ish, somewhere along that, those lines you know, preparation duration um, as a general. Hmm. I think it's good because I think for, for some reason, there still seems to be a, like a, a misconnection between the necessity for time to grow versus to lose fat. Hmm. It's almost like people think that the contest preparation is the hardest, therefore should be the longest. Yet the off season, like you said, is the time they actually grow and it's not that fast. Fat loss is so fast compared to muscle gain. My God. Yeah. Right. See, the way I look at it is like, I always tell my athletes that it's, um, you know, the success of your off-season is a proxy for how successful your contest prep uh, outcome will be because realistically, um, the off-season is about bulletproofing the physique. Get jacked, get your symmetry and proportion right. Ensure, you know, uh, an, a good status of health so your body can take the stress of the contest prep because the contest prep, the only function it serves is let's hold on to that, well, at least in the natural side of things, let's hold on to that muscle for dear life and let's really peel back the layers to totally essential amounts of fat mass to exploit the conditioning sorry to exploit the muscle we pardon me we created in the off season so that's that's an important part (laughs) we did it shouldn't be any different for the enhanced trial and the reason i say that is because although you will have pharmacology to support preventing negative adaptation you experience in a contest prep as a natural athlete from whether it be testosterone to thyroid to whatever Mm. it's still the most stressful scenario it's still hypocaloric it's not an, an environment conducive for muscle gain unless you just want to drug it on, which would be extra stress and probably not the smartest idea. Mm. And it's still the slowest period of time to grow muscle is the off season. Yeah. And it's still the most stressful too. Like in the, the, the food abundance, the drug abundance, the, the training abundance, like that's all very difficult. So a lot of uh, enhanced people fuck that up royally because they think they can get away with a, a prep that makes them gain when they should have just treated it like a natural athlete with enhancement. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, quite likely, yeah. Fascinating differences. You know, we've had many, I know we've had a couple of conversations here and there about some of the differences. And I remember a little while back, I don't know if it was on Instagram or something, we were talking about conditioning. And I said, I reckon, you know, the natural guys can, can meet the conditioning of the enhanced. And you said to me, yeah, but we can do it in half the time. And I went, damn straight. <laughs> you know, 15 weeks there, I'm, we're down for 30 weeks or something. So yeah. They can do it in half the time with the, with the muscle retention. But the problem is, like I've said this to you before, and I've said this thing on a podcast as well, is that the issue with the enhanced realm is that you're typically dealing with individuals who take drugs because they want to be massive or bigger than they're naturally capable. Yeah. And then by virtue of that want, they don't want to give up that size. So therefore, they're not willing to diet down to the level of condition necessary to lose the weight because yeah. they think they're getting smaller. And we have a lot of enhanced guys not getting sufficiently conditioned because they fear being small. Well, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, it's definitely uh, quite a psychological minefield kind of spread because, I mean, we all started bodybuilding to get bigger. 
So to literally get smaller by virtue of losing fat mass is definitely a, a mental minefield. But that's why you have, that's part of, well, part of the reason at least you have a coach to give you an objective viewpoint, keep your head right so that you're not, you know, your own personal biases aren't skewing your perception of the way you're looking and causing you to make stupid decisions. And realistically, I don't care how, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, how well versed you are in the art of preparing others for the stage. You, you need, you always need another, some, another set of eyes. Yeah, and I do. Uh, I know you, you do because you coach yourself, but I assume you obviously have people you lean on. Look, I look, I, I would say this. Um, I still put a, uh, hand over a good portion of, of the um, coaching reins to, to someone else. I mean, my last season, uh, Nathan Walsh was my eyes. And I'm not going to lie, without him, I don't think I would have achieved what I achieved. I needed someone to keep my head right. My biggest thing is I'll go too hard. I, I just love the suck. I just feel what I'm a saddest like that. I just love it. Uh, I like doing stuff that other people either won't do or just can't do so nathan's going to be my break like oh well 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 slow down mm-hmm. all right gotcha <laughs> but you have to have that i mean nathan was instrumental like that i mean we had given our relationship we have a very uh at least at that time very um like collaborative model this is where i'm at this is, this is where, I, where i want to go what are your thoughts yep cool let's make these kind of um alterations and i'm assuming you know, you would have that with some of your clients. I mean, I know, I know I do with some of the athletes that are, you know, veterans of the sport that have been around for a long time. You know, we're going to take, uh, they can provide me with some good information and obviously I can interpret that and we can collaboratively uh, modulate their protocol. Yes. If Nathan or whoever you were leaning on at the time said, like your second set of eyes, Brandon, I think the best thing to do right now is to whatever. And you fundamentally disagreed, but you were paying them for their opinion or, or their coaching. Yeah. What would you do? That's a great question. Um, look, the big thing is when if I'm going to work with someone, uh, there, there has to be that base level respect there. Um, I'm working with someone because I think they can offer me some often benefit. And I think, and I trust their, their recommendation and judgment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I was working with someone that, that, didn't, didn't hold my respect in that regard, then I'd probably override that. But in that situation, uh, I would roll with it because I, I trust them. Yeah. Mm. You mm. wouldn't be getting um, mentorship or coaching from someone you didn't trust in the first place. What's yeah. the point? You know? Trust <laughs> is important. I remember my last prep was I did it like solely by myself. And uh, I was in the hole at one point, just dragging ass like hard. And I said to Lucy, she's like, aren't you supposed to have like a few days off dieting around now? And I was like, like when's your reason? Yeah, but like, I, I don't know. I think I want to keep pushing. She's like, but how long for? And I'm like, yeah. good point. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle this for much longer. And then I was like, right, I've scheduled in myself like five days of high food. And it got to like day three. And I'm like, I'm stopping today. <laughs> she's like, why? I'm like, I feel good. Of course you do. You've eaten high food for two days. I'm like, All right, I'll have one more. <laughs> you're exactly like I like you love, love the suck and, and you yeah. know and grinding through it I find so much pleasure in grinding through it I'm like oh my god that day I did drag ass the whole entire day that was the hardest day awesome <laughs> <laughs> so I remember at the end of my contest prep you know food was coming up and it was about 600 calories out from the lowest and I'm like I'm actually not that hungry anymore fuck it I'm going to decrease my food volume I need to feel need to feel a bit hungry. Like I'm in, I'm in contest prep. <laughs> and it's like, look, if that's what you need to do mentally, then do it. I got to do it. So 
<laughs> that is for sure. So it makes it Disney. You said you're a bit of a sadist in that instance. So. That's so funny. Now, you mentioned before um, a push, eight months, and then a mini cut. What determines a mini cut for you? Like, as in, what are you looking at to determine whether or not you should implement one or not? Yeah. So I think that, that everyone has a different bandwidth of fat mass that they perform well at. And the sort of thing that I'm looking at is um, uh, we want to have, obviously, enough fat mass in general to be healthy, perform well, et cetera, but not too much fat mass where we're at a disproportionate, you know, a, a crazy striking distance from contest lean. And everyone has a bit of a different bandwidth where they perform well. You know, some people that I consider greyhounds, they stay, can stay quite lean, perform well, put on lean mass, et cetera. Um, and others, you know, it, it takes a bit more fat mass for those subjective and objective markers to really sort of sit in a good position. But like anything, you know, some is good, more is better, too much is not good. Um, we'll usually go off, you know, when we get into a position where it becomes almost an impossibility for them to get food, the required food in, uh, that would be like a red light for me. Like, wow, you know, we've exhausted everything. I know you're drinking all your calories, man. And you're really struggling to get your requisite fiber in and just meet the bare minimum for micronutrients, probably to make some changes here. And also obviously the look of the athlete um, as well. And obviously an estimate estimation for, um, you know, uh, an estimation for body fat percentage and, you know, kilos off stage weight. But as you experience, like most people get to a certain position, like I know when I get to a position where I need to mini cut, it's like, yeah, I hate food with a passion. Uh, my sleep is atrocious because I've got, you know, sleep apnea, um, uh, Stop looking at this. <laughs> I can't sleep because he's snoring. Waking up three or four times in the middle of the night with this huge burst of air and this huge sympathetic nervous response, and I'm like, okay, um, my performance is, you know, it's no longer improving. Um, I'm feeling just in general really sluggish. Mm. Probably good, you know, the, the, the objective and the subjective markers are kind of leaning towards. We need to to run a mini cut. Yeah. Let's go. No, I was going to say, like, eight months is a long time, which is good. I'm, of I'm, growth. Of growth. I'm not implying it's bad. But with an eight-month accumulation phase of both training and food, do you have any strategies that you use intermittently throughout that eight months to perhaps extend the length of that gain? So, like, say most people might find fatigue comes in at four months. But you want eight months. So, like, how do you get them to the eight-month mark? Oh, I mean, there's definitely going to be uh, strategic periods of lower training intensity and or volume essentially deloads in there um, to, to aid with mitigation of fatigue. That, that's, that's, I can say with certainty over an eight month period. Mm. Um, but I mean, that, that, that would be my go-to strategy for mitigating fatigue. So we might accumulate volume over, over one or two training cycles, run a deload. Um, and then obviously, I suppose, pivot away from our, more, from our prior uh, training stimulus in terms of the loading parameters and some of the movement selections and then rewash the process um, with some tweaks to our program. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I know some people that uh, only take deloads reactively, so when they get an injury or when they just can't get out of bed in the morning. Um, yeah. And I'm not against reactive deloads. I actually prefer them, but we like, well, I like to talk for myself. I like to do them before the person gets to breaking point, obviously. So what advice might you have um, for people that just train insane all the time? <laughs> uh, look, realistically, I think no matter how psychotic your mentality is, realistically, you can only train hard for so long. I mean, uh, even if your mentality is 10 out of 10, you know, you, you can, there'll come a time where your intensity degrades, whether it be due to the peripheral or central components of fatigue, either or either. Um, 
and you can definitely, as mentioned, be uh, you can be preemptive in putting in place deloads, or you can be uh, so proactive, or you can be kind of intuitive with it along the way. I would use a combination of both, but I would go. But depend on the individual. Some people like to have that goalpost. Like, yeah, I know there's a period of respite coming up. Therefore, I can like empty the tank, just go 100% at the last portion. And others, um, I suppose, like myself, I'm probably a little bit more. Um, uh, I'll approach it intuitively once once I'm starting to feel it. And generally speaking, at least in my experience, well, I love to hear your side of things. Obviously, you know, we accumulate fatigue both in the central and peripheral. Um, both, both central and peripheral in nature. In my experience, in the, on the most behalf, it, it's usually the peripheral components within that within bodybuilders that give out first. Starting to get a little couple of aches here. Knees are feeling a little bit touch and go. A bit of connective tissues issue in my elbow, as opposed to that psychological burnout that maybe a powerlifter would accumulate. Maybe in contest, perhaps a bit different. Mm-hmm. But that's probably going to be more of the central components. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. <laughs> It was just more of a broad sweeping statement. Having deloads and like periodizing training, I think uh, extends somebody's potential um, or, or even their, their training career. Because if you're training so hard until you break, that's the end of it right there. Yeah. But if you're taking those breaks, you're really helping yourself. Yeah. So we know that the, the result is the accumulation of your average input over time, right? Exactly right. And, yeah. And most people talk about this like two steps forward, one step backwards approach, whereas I'm, I'd prefer to frame it as two steps forward, one step sideways, continue stepping forward, which is sort of how I foresee a deload, whereas a lot of people... The other thing is people forget that you have compensatory growth that goes on in a deload. They think deloads are negative when they're actually they're kind of necessary. Yeah. yeah. I often look at it like... Because um, I, I always try and... As much as I get lost in the minutiae, when I'm talking to my athlete, uh, I, I try to simplify. And I, I always know who I'm talking to, so... You know, we're talking very depth, but I often put forward the metaphor like, you know, like like a car. If I had a Ferrari, that's expect performance. It's what it is, what it is. But I expect to maintain it. Um, but if I had a Corolla, like, just drive it. Yeah. So the same goes with your body. I mean, if we're expecting this consistent high performance, you you need a moment occasionally to shut down shop, give it the once over service it and keep going. I mean, it's an imperative piece. You can only drive, like I said, it's, it's a game of give a little and, 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 and take a little. And you just got to know, as an advanced athlete particular, in particular, when to train hard and when to pull back. Um, when to fill up the tank in the Ferrari. Um, I think that nutrition is no different. We've got, instead of rest weeks or deload weeks, we've got diet breaks and refeeds. Yeah, 100%, yeah. So I, I often approach it in the same in the same way. Think of it like a, I, I um, I, in fact I approach my whole entire life like this. Even my work life, where I'm like, all right, my work days are my training days, my weekends, my rest day. I mitigate most of the accumulated fatigue, like cognitive fatigue, etc. But then I have my holidays. They're like my deloads. Yeah. And I don't know about you, when you have a holiday, like you always come back feeling refreshed, like mentally super creative. So I look at it like training, nutrition life it's all the same you can go hard for only so much time then you need to take some time out like that's part of what you need to do have you ever backpacked before i have never because it interfered <laughs> with my body really. <laughs> oh, yeah. of course um, how many years ago now gosh it's got to be like 10 years ago now so when i was like 20 or 21 i backpacked south america 
I thought it was going to be this great holiday and my God, it was in so many ways, but I did not come back feeling refreshed. I needed a holiday from my holiday. Yeah. <laughs> it was next level. It was exhausting. So I'm going to assume you would pick holidays that are also very relaxing, not adventurous as much. Oh, yeah, yes and no. Probably a combination of both. I mean, like my downtime outside of bodybuilding um, is, well, these days it's, it's jet skiing. I love it. Now, Rachel and I have really divergent definitions of relaxation. She's like, I'm going to relax and do nothing. I'm like, I'm going to relax, which means I'm not on my phone or my computer. Can't do that when my hands are busy on a jet ski. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, so I like the concept of doing nothing, but I don't like the action of doing nothing. So even when we go on holiday, it usually, I don't know, it takes me like seven days to wind down. And then yeah. I'll have like a sleep at 12 o'clock in the middle of the day. I'm like, oh, like, that's proper relaxation. I haven't experienced yeah. that in like 10 months. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I ever went on a cruise was that, that was me for three days. I'm like, this is, what are we supposed to do? And I like, just walk around trying to find stuff. And then I'm like, everybody just seems to be laying by the pool and drinking cocktails. Maybe I'll give that a go. Have you ever trained on a um, cruise boat before, Brandon? I have never been on a cruise, to be Haven't honest. Haven't you? Don't train on it. You'll oh, it. man. So I don't think it's safe to have dumbbells on a cruise gym. I was, because they're big boats. So even when it's really rocky, it's like, you know, slowly rocking. It's not going to throw you around. Yep. But doing dumbbells on an unstable platform because the boat's rocking is dangerous. Yeah. They should have Smith machines at best. <laughs> but it's like doing weights on a, like a large bossy ball. Yeah, I guess so. For the entire session. <laughs> yeah, I've never, never been on a, on a cruise boat, but I have had a couple of, <clears throat> a couple of clients that have done cruises and they've said something like, oh, trying to do lunges is actually really quite hard. Yeah. For the reason they only put, you know, 24 kilo dumbbells there. So you can't really hurt yourself too much, but. Yeah. You definitely have to do it parallel with the boat. So that you're rocking left or right. Otherwise, you could rock off with the weight of the number. I don't know. I get seasick at the best of time. So trying to train with it is, is very difficult. Guess what, actually? When I went on my cruise, I did a two-week cruise around the Caribbean islands. Mm. And um, it was when I was single before Dean, just with a girlfriend. We were like, cruise party, boys. No, it was like a family cruise. There was like really old people, like parents with their kids. And like, that was really it. We were like, oh, great. We'll just, we'll just train and eat and, and read books then. And it was still really fun. But I won the this bicep competition on the boat. And it meant I won the praise of the whole cruise ship and a corona. <laughs> but I... Um, can bench press like a legend, but will not beat a child in an arm wrestle, like just the worst. The only reason I won is because a component of the Miss Bicep competition is that we did an arm wrestle, but the chick I was versing was left-handed. <laughs> so I feel like a massive fraud, but I still took the title. Where's the trophy? <laughs> no, it was a Corona. I just, oh, I right. want a Corona. You have to be specific now. It's a beer. Not coronavirus. She got the virus. No. I... You're the reason the world shut down. Fuck's sake. Sorry, guys. <laughs> My bad. Um, now, before we get into fun questions, I have one more question to pose to you, Brandon. Mm. That is, people often talk about the ability to build metabolic capacity from a calorie standpoint, as in, yeah. can you build it to the point where you eat more in the off-season, therefore you'll get to eat more in prep? Do you think it's true, or what are your thoughts on it? I think it's an interesting topic. I think it's, it's sort of like a, a yes, maybe no, I'll give you my perspective, and uh, I would love your rebuttal. Let's just see. But basically, I mean, look, one thing we know for certain is that, yes, there is, you know, there is a level of adaptability when it comes to one's metabolism. And obviously uh, that occurs in different components of one's metabolism. And obviously the, the, the component that we're really, re really referring to is 
uh, adaptive thermogenesis, which obviously refers to an increase or decrease in one's metabolic rate that supersedes what can be calculated from changes in body weight, whether it be increase or decreases, which obviously there's a variety of adaptation that occurs across the 11 systems of the body. But realistically, that adaptation is, is well, although incredibly intelligent, it's a pain in the ass in dieting phases, right? But it's all geared towards increasing metabolic efficiency so in, in times where uh, energy availability is scant. So it's a bit of an asymmetric piece. So whilst I agree that you know, we, can, we can influence metabolic rate positively a little bit when it comes to adaptive thermogenesis, you know, there's a definite ceiling and obviously a large portion of the increase in one's metabolic rate in the off-season when we're increasing calories from non-exercise to be thermogenesis. Mm. Um, so I think it's always in your best interest to get calories as high as possible in the off-season, but it's sort of, it's not specifically for that. It's more a matter of in order to please uh, an energy surplus that's conducive to maximizing MPS and protein occurral. Um, I think that when it comes to people who are yo-yo dieting and they're getting back, you know, they're getting into a dieting phase and they're like, oh, it's impossible, like I'm diet resistant. I would say metabolic adaptation is a finite piece in both directions. Um, if it was infinite, we would not be either obese nor would we die of famine. Um, it's more a matter when people go and yo-yo diet, they've, they've dieted down, accumulate all this, people call it, Net, you know, it's negative adaptation. It's intelligent adaptation to the dieting condition pertaining to everything from metabolic rate to general, like to reproductive function to uh, appetite regulation. Most of these adaptations, not all, but some of them, they're quite persistent for some time. So when people come out of a dieting phase and jump straight back into it, usually it's their adherence that falters because instead of being 10 weeks in the dieting phase and going, now I'm really quite hungry, it'll be two weeks in because the body remembers this situation. Huh, last time I waited a little bit too long, this time I'm going to start to really upregulate those um, uh, orexigenic hormones and start to give you a good punch in the guts. So a bit of a yes and no. I think it's in your best interest to get cows higher, but do I think it makes a huge difference in how low cows get? Probably not massively. Mm. What are your thoughts? I don't think either of us have a rebuttal to that because that seems like... No, it's in line with my thoughts and it, it doesn't seem to be that... the it's, there's certainly not a relationship whereby if you can afford somehow to get calories higher and still maintain like decent condition in the off season, that that will then transfer into the dieting phase where you'll magically eat more than what you did the last time, assuming your body weight is roughly the same. Yeah. And I think people get this really twisted, right? There's two things. I've seen this in the past, probably not so much now, but like 2014, people will come out of their contest prep like, all right, man, I, re I reverse dieted to 3,500 calories last season. I'm doing 6,000 this time. Like <laughs> that you're severely mistaken of how this actually works. Um, <laughs> I wish. Or they feel like their off-season calories are a, a representation of progression. My last contest prep started on these cows. This time, 200 more. And I'm like, not, not really how it works. I mean, if you look at me, you'd say like, oh, you beat, you've regressed a lot because... <laughs> You know, you used to have to eat 4,500 calories when you were a PT on the gym floor doing eight to 10 hours a day. And now I'm a glorified desk jockey. I eat a lot less calories these days because I'm moving less. So if you're really uneducated, or I shouldn't say that's a really bad way, but ill-informed, you would say like, oh, you're metabolically screwed, man. Yeah. Just a logical manifestation of moving less. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Even yeah. if we, um, although I think like everything that, You've, your answer to this question is wise and likely the case. 
it's very difficult to accurately test anyways, because sure, people log their food in my fitness pal, but did they weigh it in the first place? Was the entry correct? Like, did it include fiber and calories? Like, it just even trying to measure it is impossible. And so, steps aren't actually always steps. Yeah, like what was your output? We're looking at input, but how did your output go? Yeah, exactly. And we can't measure all output. We're only measuring output by steps, but there's also other movement, like you stopped jittering your foot now yeah. because you're more fatigued. And Yeah, exactly right. And it's actually, speaking of, we're, we're not to get off topic here. Speaking of non-exercise activity thermogenesis, literally, I, I'm, I would be considered a neat freak. I bounce around the walls all the time when... My clients always say, if you move with your whole body when you're talking, I'm like, yeah, I probably get 2,000 steps a day here doing FA. Yeah. But in contest prep, I don't sit on the couch. I sit inside the couch. Like, <laughs> full sit into it. Like, I'll be talking to someone. I'm leaning against the desk like this. Oh, yeah, how you going? There's just so much, much adaptation that people don't realize. I drag my feet. I trip over things. Like, why am I so clumsy? It's because, like, I'm lifting my feet two centimeters off the ground with each stride to as a... Yeah. That's because you don't want to have a, a greater force of just your bony feet hitting the ground, coming back down. That's another piece. I don't know about you. I cannot walk on tiled. I can't walk on tiles in contest prep. It feels like my calcaneus is going to burst at the bottom of my fat pads. <laughs> I have a donut, like quite literally back here. Like, you know, one of those donuts. Yeah, yeah. That? That's to sit on in contest prep because my ass gets so sore. Like I got to move around side to side. It feels like my ischial tuberosity is going to puncture my glutes. Oh man. That is called getting dick skin lean. That is fun. Does it sound fun? No, it doesn't. It sounds, doesn't at all. It sounds really fun to me. Um, now, Brandon, let's wrap up with uh, something worth sharing questions. So we like to ask our guests if they have something worth sharing with our listeners. It could be a book, a quote, a habit, a tip, whatever. Talk about putting me on spot. I know, sozies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to nail this down to one thing. Um, oh, there is probably a variety of bits and pieces, but probably the first thing that comes to mind it is bespoke to bodybuilding, obviously, because that's that's uh, topic. what you do. Yeah, That's really all I am, really, just bodybuilding. Um, <laughs> probably the, the best single piece of advice, as this sounds super self-serving, but... The best advice I can give anyone who wants to get on stage um, is to to find the right people to to look up to, um, and well, essentially employ a coach and get educated. Because I feel like there's so many people that spend the first few years of their training career mucking around. But I will say that we've definitely seen a change in the trend in recent times, whereby we're seeing you know, 22-year-old or 21-year-old junior bodybuilders taking overalls at shows because they started training early and they had access to the right people and the right resources and they fast-tracked their progress where, you know, we used to see you were 28, 30 years old before you didn't consider getting into the pro level. Mm. Um, so I think just, in, and like I said, very self-serving, but, or at least it sounds as such, but best advice is to really get in with the right people and, and really invest in your education, whether it's through formal means or whether it's just through you know, coaching and, and, you know, personally uh, expanding your, your knowledge. Mm. Love it. It's good. It's great. Uh, fun questions. Go on, Dean. Oh, God. Worst or most outrageous prep story you've got for yourself? What, like Brandon's prep clients or himself? Oh, it could be either or. Okay. I'll, I'll choose to keep this to myself for the sake of protecting my clients. You know, you could just say athlete X is an idiot for the following reason. No. <laughs> I would say the, the probably the the worst. Uh, uh, all right, um, 
well, I, I think this is funny, but it's probably not. But in, um, I think it was 2014, finished up show. Um, obviously, you, you, your hunger sensitivity through the ceiling. You've got all those fun things like delayed satiation and complete and utter no food volume perception. You feel like you can eat the universe until you're sick and you're still hungry somehow. But anyway, so I went and uh, went to Surface Paradise and I don't know if you know Fuku, but I went and smashed a couple bowls of that. Then yeah, I went. Uh, so Fuku is at um, Broadbeach, right? Oh, Broadbeach it is. Yeah, yeah. That's we chicken. love Fuku. Still eat there, man. Fuku's great. We go there often. It's chicken and rice done right. So two bowls of that down over to um, oh, whatever the chocolate place was. Smashed two of their chocolate things. Probably had four times more fat than I have. We had a month's worth of fat. So my gallbladder was sitting there. Like, I can't produce this much bile salt. So I went down to my car and I've literally for like that 10 minutes sat in the car. Oh, no, no, no. Stepped out of the car because I'm feeling so sick. And then I've leaned out of the car and just vomited everywhere. And then right as I did that, this family walked around the corner and I could hear her mutter under her breath, oh, my God, that guy's so drunk. <laughs> <laughs> drunk that, in, my, in my own spew, I was like, I can't even come up with a rebuttal for that, but I haven't drunk in many years. So, <laughs> <laughs> And they would have seen you drive away too, probably shaking their heads. Yes, quite eating. possibly, yeah. <laughs> or he would, have, he would have gone upstairs and went, I reckon I could probably get another donut. <laughs> it's funny, <laughs> I've had clients ask me, how do I count my macros like after I spew? Like, do I take that meal off? I was like, oh, that's a great question. That is an interesting You spew yeah. the whole thing up? Like, I don't know. Maybe that. weigh your spew on the scales and if it weighed about the same. <laughs> no. Imagine, imagine the ethical considerations for setting that up. Eat food and then they've got to like self-induced vomiting and then determine <laughs> the calorie expenditure versus how much you actually retained. And... To be, uh, just to clarify, that yeah. wasn't self-induced because I'm that person, I can, like vomiting, I've probably done it maybe a few times my whole entire life and I just, I, I, it, I can't do it. I despise it too. It's just oh, I vomit easily when I, um, when I drink alcohol, like I'm just always vomiting. I don't know like what my problem is. And um, I always feel better after I vomit. And so whenever I feel nauseous, to me, the solution is to vomit because it works when I'm drunk, right? And so a couple of times I've stuck the back of my toothbrush down my throat mm. to try and make myself gag. All that happens is my eyes go watery and red. And I just like, I would be the worst bulimic ever. I can't do it. <laughs> this is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I despise vomiting. It's, it's the worst. Horrible. Such a terrible feeling. I'm the same. I think I've probably vomited maybe less than a handful of times. In fact, I, I can um, actually, oh, now we're going to get off topic. But I think, so back in 2000 and um, maybe 2013, I was just, hard, as I thought, hardcore at least. Uh, and at that time, I was probably pushing around 5,500 cows, which for the size of my frame was just an absolute mission. Um, and I can remember being about two weeks out from starting my first contest prep. I've got to make every single day count. And I've eaten, eaten, eaten. So I've got an extra two hours at night to smash my 400 grams of just right cereal or whatever I had to eat to hit my carbohydrate. I'm lying in bed there, stomach pushing against the diet frame, trying to breathe. <laughs> really, really shallow. And then I stood up and thrown up in the bathroom. And I just remember being so pissed off. Mother <laughs> F, had two hours worth of work putting this food in. Like... <laughs> <laughs> God, you're a bodybuilder. <laughs> that, yeah. man, how Have much you did you weigh? Been that full that you? Oh, man, me and James Allegre, we he'd finished his contest prep, and boy can eat. Apparently. Yeah, he can eat, right? 
And he was like, I want to do this food challenge in Sydney. It's um, a half a kilo of bread, a half a kilo of pork, and I think a half chips. kilo of coleslaw with chips on the side. Yeah. Anyway, so they basically got a whole bread loaf, hollowed it out, filled it with pork and coleslaw. And you had 30 minutes to eat it. Otherwise, you paid for it, which was 70 bucks. Okay. And um, I ended up, we, we, we enjoyed it. So I just ate it nice. And then they're like, oh, you've got 10 minutes. So I ended up doing the whole, like, dump the bread in the water, trying to get it down in time so I didn't have to pay for it. He was just going at it and uh, he got to like 110 grams left and I got to like 180 grams left. So we both put away like a kilo and a half of food, but bread with water. Mm. And I was, we were walking to the car laughing at ourselves. Did you do it? No, we had to pay for it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, and it was the same, like, like trying to catch a breath. Cause it was like in the, like, you know, it was like in my esophagus almost. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, I'm going to vomit. This is so bad. And then he was like in pain. And then the motherfucker sends me a message like 10 minutes later. He's like, it was too salty. I had to get a McFlurry on the way home. And, then, <laughs> and it's just him like, this is in the car. It's kind of like, oh, this was such a bad idea. I don't know why I did this. It's, it's like you said, man, it's, it's insatiable hunger post-COVID. It doesn't matter. It's, it's nuts. Thankfully, uh, after my last show, I only had about 12 hours left in the USA. Otherwise, I think we'd have like, rolled onto the airplane had it been like four days or something. Um, yeah. Good times. <laughs> That's so funny. Now, um, before, should we ask Brandon how people can contact him? If no. You got, got more a, questions? Yeah. All right. We've got a would you rather. Well, actually, I had another one. Most embarrassing life moment, but we'll skip that one and we'll go to would you rather, Brandon? Yeah. Never compete again or never coach again? Oh, dude. <laughs> Talk about comments. That's hard. Yeah, I can't, tell you, I can't tell you how much joy it brings me to coach other people. Um, it brings me so much, so much joy. And that's probably part of the reason I find it so easy to stay away from the stage for a couple of years at a time and really grow because I can live it through other people. Like every single season, it's the best thing. Fudge. Uh, I don't know. I'll tell you what. Uh, oh, shit, I don't know. I'd probably go with uh, never compete again only because, only because I had a pretty good run so far. Uh, <laughs> like you'll be leaving at the top of your game. Yeah, go out on top. <laughs> I, I personally think I've still got more in the tank and I'm dying to get back on stage again once uh-huh. I finish this next degree because uh, that's a focus point. But uh, I'd probably, if I had to choose, I'd probably go that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, the title of this episode is Brandon Hates Competing. Who's chosen to oh, Brandon, will he compete again? Question mark. <laughs> Chuck it on. Fate <laughs> 101, let's go. <laughs> we got um we got a, we got carried away at the start, but I was going to say oh we've got an announcement to make. Brandon's we're just going to here to tell everyone that Brandon's decided to move to the IFBB, and then Ooh. just like just so that anyone that's come to listen to you would be like what the fuck, and then I'd be like nah it's only a joke. Title is uh what did Matt Ogus do many years ago? Like Matt Ogus is not natural. Put that as a title. <laughs> yes, Brandon Kemser admits to PEDs. <laughs> Fish people no, into listening. Brandon Kemser eats and vomits to get shredded. <laughs> <laughs> so many options we'll have to just wait and see which one we go for. i love it uh, <laughs> if people wanted to contact you brandon for coaching or just for a stalk how would they do that uh probably the best way would be uh through instagram to be totally honest i'm not as active as i really should be as a product of being so involved with my athletes but um uh instagram brandon kempter uh, you'll find me there. You can find me on Facebook. I don't, have a, I don't actually have a business page on Facebook. It's not a personal, but I don't use it that much. But you can find me there if you please. But uh, either there or you can Google BK Conditioning. Um, obviously, the site comes up there. You can see what we do and get a, get a bit of an idea there. Love it. Sounds good. Perfect. 
Well, thank you for coming on our podcast today and having a chat. Mm-hmm. And um, if I must say, because we never say this, if you did enjoy this podcast, uh, please take a screenshot, tag us, tag Brandon, and obviously give us a like and a share and all that jazz. Yeah, we would appreciate it. I think that's the first time we've said that in 50 episodes. Well, I think in the last episode, I went to say, like, make sure you subscribe. And it just felt really awkward and robotic. So thanks for doing it this time, Dean. No problem. Thanks very much, mate. Appreciate your time. Not a problem. Not a problem.